This podcast is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, award-winning wealth managers who go above and beyond to support and guide you. Visit candowealth.com to start building your wealth with confidence. Welcome to the Saturday edition of Coffee House Shots. I'm Cindy Yu and I'm joined by Fraser Nelson and James Forsyth. Now, Fraser, congratulations to your wife, Linda, because this week she has been naturalised as a British citizen. You write about this in your Telegraph column this week. But you also make the point that, you know, it's an interesting process, an interesting tone that the Brits take compared to other countries that welcome new citizens. Tell us about it. Yeah, I started off um, thinking this was all faintly ridiculous. I mean, Linda is a, you know, she's a refugee child and that both of her parents fled the Soviet. So they came to Sweden and she's quite sort of grateful to Sweden and will always be because they gave her parents shelter, they taught her her home language, Czech, that's what they call it in Sweden. And she's got a sort of refugee's gratitude to her adopted country. Um, and then she came to live um, here 15 years ago w- with, with me. So she didn't want to leave her Swedish citizenship behind. And I can understand that. Can she I, not be dual national? She is dual oh, national, yeah. yeah. But the thing is, not every country allows that. I think the Dutch, for example, will demand that you drop your other citizenship if you want, if you want to be Dutch. Um, certainly India doesn't do that. But Rishi Sunak's wife got into trouble there because if she, she, she was partly, her immigration status is partly explained by the fact that she could not be British unless she forfeited her Indian identity. And I can understand why you'd want to keep your original passport. But do you have your Chinese passport? No, China doesn't recognise your nationality. Right, so, so you, you had a choice, right? But I can guess, I mean, in your case, it was made for you at the age of 10, right? But I can completely understand how some people would want to keep hold of both. And of course, you don't, in this country, though, you don't need a British passport. Linda has indefinite leave to remain. She got that in a matter of minutes after Brexit by doing the relevant app. And the British government doesn't really encourage people to take citizenship. They were quite happy to leave people in kind of limbo. And um, the only thing she can't do here is vote in elections. But everything else she's entitled to. Um, before she became a citizen. Yeah, before she became a citizen, yeah. And if you look, right now, there are lots of many people in that category. In the NHS, for example, one in four doctors are foreign national. One in seven NHS staff are foreign nationals. But that doesn't mean to say that they're necessarily foreign. Some of these people could be, like you, Cindy, have been in Britain here since childhood, but have just been keeping hold of their passport. But to get a British passport, it costs a huge amount of money. It's, I mean, the actual fee itself is 1,330 quid. Mm. That is um, twice as much as it is in the US. I think it's four or five times as much as Canada and New Zealand. It's also four times as much as it costs the Foreign Office. So it's made needlessly expensive. But it's also so complicated that you need a lawyer to take you through this process. And it's a pretty daunting process. So you need a pretty good reason to go through it. Mm. Now, we're lucky to be able to afford this. I mean, Linda wanted to be British in a way which I was quite surprised by it soon. But she kind of figured that, that this country, too, has given her a lot. She's got three British kids now. She has come to really love Britain. And, um, you know, we were lucky enough to go to last night of the proms last September. And I was just amazed to watch this transformation of this girl beside me who was belting out rural Britannia with all of this, <laughs> this fervent, with a sort of immigrant's passion, right? And you can see this in politics. When Kemi Badenek gave her maiden speech, she was talking about the, the project of the United Kingdom as she saw it and how she liked going from being an African girl to a British woman. When Nadim Zahawi, the education secretary, gives speeches, he often chucks in his story about how 
he came here speaking no English and then he ended up running a company going to parliament and this is the greatest country in the world, my friends, he says. You tend to get immigrants making this point more often than natives. You quite often get an enthusiasm for being British, which we Brits think it's not quite déclassé, but just not British to events. It's like the paradox that, you know, the whole point of being British is not having to talk about being British. But that's not how people who come here see it. They think it is something attractive. They would like it. We're lucky enough to have been able to afford the lawyer, the paperwork and everything. So Linda could go on this um, this strange journey where you need to learn about British history and culture. You pass the various tests and you go to a ceremony. But I'm, I'm mindful that it is not a journey which the government encourages. And I've been struck by how many other people I've spoken to who say that they or their parents would quite like to do the same, but they either can't afford it or the facing a lawyer with all the rigmarole is just too much. Now, my, my final point here is that um, we are as much of an immigrant nation as America. We don't think of ourselves as that, but we are. 14% of the people in this country are born somewhere else. In America, it's 13%. But America recognises itself as an immigration nation. It's got these mm. this melting pot techniques. It's got the people who go to school swearing allegiance to the flag and the republic to which it stands. And James used to live in America. You know, there you get these, these manifestations of fidelity to the project of the United States, which is designed and mindful, in fact, in these states. You get people speaking Spanish. You get people from all over the world. You want to make... One out of many. That's the e pluribus unum. Yeah, but America does that. Where we don't, we sort of act like it's not really happening, and it is. James, do you think that's fair that the Brits don't really want to recognise that people might want to be joining the country? Because, I mean, in Fraser's column, he, he makes a comparison with the Canadian leaflet that says, welcome, you know, it takes courage to join a new country, whereas a British one says naturalisation is not an entitlement. <laughs> um, I personally think we should we should encourage people to become citizens. We should, I mean, I, I think you should, I, I don't think we should want a kind of metic class where people who have economic rights but not political rights. I think we should want people to become British to have the right to vote you know I think you know it was obviously right that we offered indefinite leave to remain to all EU nationals who were in the country at the time of Brexit but I also think we should actively encourage these people to become citizens and mm-hmm. I, I think it's a, to pick up on Fraser's point I think it's a real pity that there are some countries that do not allow dual nationality I think because I think you should you know I think you know at first of all a country where our head of state is also head of state of I think 15 other places would be a bit hypocritical not to allow people to, to, to have uh, more than one nationality but I also think it's I think I think it, it, it reflects something about the, the broad, open-minded outlook of this country that we allow people to be dual nationals. I, I mean, I mean, so why do you think that it is that this, this phenomenon that Fraser picks out is it to do with this immigration attitude, hostile environment, or anything? I think like the Home that? Office is deeply suspicious of why anyone is in the country, <laughs> and, and 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 I think there is that. I also think we have. I think there is a problem, which is... Do you remember when, when Gordon Brown used to talk about Britishness all the time? Um, yeah, because he was Scottish and wanted to, people to forget. And so the kind of, the, the kind of smart aleck response was, oh, if you have to define Britishness, you don't know what it is. You know, you can't... Which is not very helpful, as Fraser mm. says, when you're trying to absorb a large number of people into your country and, and into your society. I, I personally think, you know, again, like citizenship education is another thing which has gone down all the wrong rabbit holes. I think citizenship education should be quite a simple process where everyone learns how people in this country got the right to vote because that is the kind of fundamental thread of our national story i think it teaches you 
our history, which is obviously not perfect, but is ultimately a story of progress to uh, the country that we are today. And that, I think, is what we should be doing. I also think that it's, it's a real pity that we don't make a bigger deal of these citizenship ceremonies, as the, the phrase uh, talks about. You know, I mean, it wasn't even allowed to go to Linda's ceremony. And I think that that is something that we should encourage because the fact is that Linda and everyone else who becomes a British citizen, you can pay no country a greater or deeper compliment mm. than choosing mm. to become one of its citizens. But I, I would say something in defence of, of the UK's attitude towards immigration, which is just that, you know, for example, if you're making the comparison with America, racial relations in the UK are so much better than racial relations are in America, as far as I understand, at least, James, I mean, correct well, me if I, I'm wrong. I, I, but I, I, look, I mean, I, I think you can, I think the world phrase world beating and all this is, you know, it's all been used too much. David Cameron is saying something, there's a very plausible case that Britain is the world's most successful multi-ethnic yeah. democracy. I think it's... Probably because we don't talk about it that much. Yeah. Um, I, and I also, I think, it's because it is something that is, this is not politically contested, right? right. You know, look at uh, both front benches and they are both, you know, ethnically diverse in a way that we no longer comment on. And I mean, that is a good thing. Though also being British is something where there isn't really an ethnic aspect to that. I think Britain was through empire the original multi-ethnic state. I mean, the Queen has had as her subjects. You but know. also the Union is, a, yeah, is by union definition. By joining but, together English people and Scottish people. Because I wouldn't call myself English, but I would call myself British. Right, and nobody would think twice about that. Whether if you were in Sweden and wanted to call yourself Swedish... It's funny that the way in Sweden, when they talk about being Swedes, usually there's an ethnic dimension to that. And I was always very struck by that, about how Linda and her fellow refugee friends, she had quite a lot of you know friends who... I mean, Sweden's quite absorbative of refugees in Stockholm. You can hang out with families who are you know born in Sweden but still from refugee families, but they wouldn't call themselves Swedish. And in Sweden, when you talk about immigrants, that word is so often applied to the children of immigrants. Now, I'm not saying that there's sort of something dark and racist behind there, but it is the case that the word British can be applied it's a fundamentally inclusive label and nobody i think would bat an eyelid if um you know if if somebody somebody from china like you cindy would say that i'm british i mean you can it is just uncontroversial and i think that is why we are such an attractive country that's why that if if people i think um, vote with their feet and the reason people are queuing up in calais trying to get to britain is because simply it's a better option if you've traveled half the world to get to a decent country then why settle for france you would absolutely want to go the whole <laughs> the whole hog well i'm glad you mentioned calais actually Fraser, uh, because what about where does this all rwanda situation uh, fall into our discussion then because clearly there are some people coming from the outside that people are not so welcome about. I mean, this the difference is between very popular legal policy. and illegal. That's the question. Now, right now, look, I am one of the few people who think that there is merit in offshore processing, and I'll tell you why. The you need a sense of fairness in immigration, an idea that if you play by the rules, you can come here and be welcomed as a Brit in exactly the same rights and status as everybody else. But if you do not play by the rules, if you try to come here illegally, there's a sense of unfairness that a lot of people feel very, very deeply. And I think that can undermine support for immigration. Now, the funny thing about Brexit is that there was a sense of unfairness there. Immigration was a very controversial topic in this country. It was like the first or second topic that most troubled people. If you look at immigration now, it's way down the list of priorities. People don't aren't concerned about it, even though we're getting as many immigrants as we did pre-Brexit, because a sense of fairness is there. 
So I think it is possible to to be, have a very tough offshore processing for But asylum. But this is not seekers. processing, right? Rwanda, the policy Rwanda of Rwanda is not processing. They are just left in Rwanda. Yeah, and I think that is wrong. <laughs> I think the idea that a successful asylum seeker stays in Africa is just cr- so crazy. The Tories are going to have to change it. But I, I would understand the notion of being able to say to people, we are, we are going to process you offshore. Right. Uh, because right now, I, I really regard people trafficking as one of the great giant evils of this world. And I think you need to take huge steps to deter it. And I think that this is a lesson which um, France and Italy have learned the hard way over the last f- five years. So I would advocate both tougher measures against illegal immigration, but a lot more um, encouragement on people who are here illegally. I'm also one of the people who would also offer an amnesty for people who are undocumented migrants who've been here for, say, 10 years or more. I think it's time to settle their status too. You can do that if you have a sense of um, that the borders are still are still being protected. And that's what the government's losing right now. We're discussing why the Home Office is so mean, right? Mm. Why its default position is, please bugger off, and you're lucky if we don't send you to Rwanda. please in that. Uh, yeah. <laughs> But, that's, but, but the reason why is because they feel that we're lacking control. But the only tool they've got is to snarl at anybody who wants to come to Britain. And I think it's such a shame, really, that in Canada, you've got a welcoming picture of the Queen. Welcome. Thank you for wanting to join our country. And in Britain, the Queen is relegated to page 121 of that guidebook because the Home Office wants to be seen as standoffish. I don't think it needs to be. If it can do its job in patrolling the borders, it can afford to be more generous to the many millions of people who are foreign nationals in Britain who would like to become citizens, but either don't have the money or don't have the courage of going through a process that's designed to put people off. Well, James, how do you recon- reconcile this tension that I'm, I'm trying to draw out here? I, I think it is about control. I think people people are re- relatively relaxed about mm. the idea of people coming to this country and becoming British if they feel that they are in control of the process when you see the sites of people you know there's a kind of almost definition of a lack of control when you see the sites of kind of dinghies mm. being arriving on beaches and people jumping out of dinghies and 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 the like you know, I, I think that is the problem i think you can raise the point as fraser says that you're not you're not offshore processing if your asylum claim succeeds you end up thinking asylum in rwanda yeah. not not in this country but i i think there is an aspect of control being important to people i also think that any society should not only take steps to actively integrate people when they arrive but you also should be realistic about the numbers that you can successfully integrate at any point i think you know fraser talked about you know 14 percent of the population being immigrants i think you know if that number was say over 50 percent for example i think that would be quite hard to do that while maintaining sure. uh both political consent and a sense of a cohesive sense of national identity i mean i don't think you need to become america with kind of flagpoles outside every house and all this stuff but i think we should more actively talk about our country and so people talk about decolonizing the curriculum i mean you actually need to talk, teach more about britain's history to see it yeah. in context because you can't understand if you were to remove all idea of Britain's imperial past from the history curriculum, you would not be able to understand why we are the country we are today, why certain um, ethnic groups are that, that are, are are in the UK and regard the UK as home. I think you need to be able to talk about the nature of, of, of because ultimately this this explains 
our story yeah. and you have to you know, i'm not suggesting that you kind of paint some kind of rose tinted view but you know everything is about you but you but the idea of it, that removing this from the curriculum somehow solves the problem is to my mind bizarre because actually it just leaves a lacunae a kind of a, a gap in everyone's knowledge well, i totally agree but i actually think the current curriculum as it is right now focusing in history on the tudors and the nazis as the oh, yeah. main modules is already problematic it's only through my podcast chinese whispers sorry for the plug um that i've realized how much of the british positive influence that has been in China's 19th and 20th century history which is not something that I was taught about ever at all um, so the, I think the Scottish a positive influence you mean. right well I'm not sure the Scottish particular influence was oh, good we, we were pretty sound I have to say but, we were pre- pretty good at running chunks of China yeah no Fraser you're really losing me there Fraser I wanted to talk to you about the citizenship test itself as well because James talks about this point of integration that yeah. uh, Linda obviously had to go through this process how did she find the questions that were being asked of her? Oh she was swatting up for that every night asking me questions that I did not know the answer to and she found it well, not tedious but she found it exciting she was she basically says that having gone through this process she understands and enjoys living in this country a lot more than she did before she now gets references that she never got before she knows like you know why Sussex and Wessex um, got their names mm-hmm. she uh, e- even learning about the Welsh electoral cycle just uh, made her feel a, a little bit more understanding of Britain and I, I felt quite guilty here because the only thing I did for her was show her a Beatles documentary I, 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 I thought she should absolutely know all the songs on Sgt Pepper but I didn't think she should really know much about, about the Magna Carta. And things that we take for granted, I think, um, or, or we might associate it being drilled into us at school, are, I hadn't re- realised just how, how much appetite there was to, 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 to learn that. I mean, Linda was talking to other people doing the same course as her, and they all quite enjoyed it. I'm not sure. When she's asking me these questions, I, I knew that here I am, a, not just a Brit, but I'm a journalist who's supposed to specialise in current affairs and I was ignorant of a lot of things. A lot of them, of course, there's no doubt, they are pretty strange questions. But really, they, um, I don't think it's entirely unfair to suggest that there are some basics about our country, our poetry, our history that we ought to know. So you guys know what's coming up next, right? <laughs> hit us, hit it with us, <laughs> So, first question. I would just like to remind you that removing people's nationality is against the <laughs> <laughs> Which king was executed in 1649? This is easy. I got Charles first. There we go. How tall is the London Eye? <laughs> oh, for... I mean, 282 feet, 373 feet, 443 feet, or 552 feet? I'd go for 400. I have absolutely no idea. I really do... Cindy, what, 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 it's a sample what, question. I don't see... What's what, your answer, Cindy? My answer is 443, which is the right answer. All oh, right, you got the answers. <laughs> okay... What about? I genuinely, I don't that, that I don't understand what role point well, this that is, this has. This is actually a really in interesting text, point right? because who writes these quizzes and what determines? Well, the there there is a little bit of civil service bureaucraties. I mean, some of them are very good, but I mean, having how is anybody who's never seen the London Eye supposed to guess how tall it is? I know well, I see the see... London Eye every day, but I've no idea how tall it is. Right, but you see, I, I, I think of height in meters, not feet. Who was voted the greatest Briton of all time in two thousand and two? Winston Churchill. All right, well, I didn't have to give the multiple choice there. Very good, James. When did women get the right to vote at the same age as men? 1918, 1928, 1938, or 1948? 28. I think it's done by female property owners first. 
So you're going for universal female suffrage? Not universal, no, at the same age as men. Okay, 1928. Yeah, very good, very good. All right. Who appoints the local chief constable? And this can be your last one, and I will let you go. The Prime Minister, the Speaker, Police and Crime Commissioners, or the Monarch? Police and Crime Commissioners. PCC. It's a stupid new Labour. No, it's a Tory innovation. Oh, right. Okay, well, I got that bit wrong. Well, there we go. We are all Brits here. So, James and Fraser, thanks very much for humouring me today. Thank you.